I think one of the difficulties in coming to understand what Christianity is really all about, which I think is a difficulty um, for those outside the church, and sometimes, unfortunately, it's a difficulty for those inside the church. Um, but th- well, I think one of the difficulties is there's a lot of words that mean very different things from a Christian perspective than they do in the general culture. And so, some of these things, some of these words, I think often we assume that we know what they mean because we use them in the general culture. Words like faith. Faith in our culture, which means sort of this kind of ability that you have to sort of keep your head up when things are difficult. Very different, very different than what the Bible means by faith. Um, hope would be another one. Love would be another one. Tonight we're going to talk about two of these words that really mean very different things in, 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 in Christianity than they do in the general culture, and they're these, work and rest. We've been talking about the Ten Commandments, and particularly how the Ten Commandments help us to live in community, to be formed as a true countercultural community, even as a colony of the kingdom, demonstrating to the watching world that there is another way to live. Demonstrating to the watching world that we believe very different things often as Christians about what human flourishing means which has applications to everything that you're about, everything that you're studying. Everything you're studying gets down to what, what is human flourishing all about. And there are very different views of that in the culture, even from your professors, your fellow students. Work and rest are two of those issues that we're going to talk about tonight. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy. This is one of the commandments that's stated differently, at least the reasons stated for this commandment are different in Exodus than in Deuteronomy, which is interesting. In Exodus, the focus is on, uh, you know, keep a Sabbath because in doing so you imitate the Lord your God who rested on the seventh day after six days of working. But in Deuteronomy, the emphasis is on community. Because you remember, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where God, uh, used this last sermon that Moses preaches as his people are about to enter into the promised land to actually, you know, it's kind of one last shot. Are these people going to get all these things we've been trying to teach them about community, and of course you know the answer, they're not really going to get it. They're going to make a terrible mess of it. And yet the Lord, the Lord, you remember we say this all the time, the Ten Commandments are not the first word that he spoke, and they're not the last. He's not going to give up on his people. And so we can continue to go back and look at the Ten Commandments and say, what is it that God has revealed for how we live in community? And so if you would, if you have a Bible, if you guys have a Bible, I know I've probably set you up to not bring your Bibles because the last few weeks I've been printing the passage on the outline, and I didn't do that this time. So I apologize for that. But it's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in verse 12, it says this. I'll give you a sec to get there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm 
Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So here the Sabbath is, is grounded in the fact that you were slaves who the Lord brought you out of Egypt, as well as the fact that you're in a community. And not only should you honor the Sabbath yourself, but you should make sure that all of those that you're in community with have the opportunity to honor the Sabbath as well. It's very interesting to talk about. Um, and, and I think, you remember we said, you know, part of the context of the Ten Commandments, the Lord does not give these commandments to bring people back into bondage. For goodness sake, he just delivered them out of Egypt. He starts out the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Now I'm giving you Ten Commandments to put you back into slavery? No. The Ten Commandments are always really God's wisdom for how we are to stay free. But they also point us beyond themselves to the ultimate freedom that God will secure for us in what Jesus did. And so tonight we're going to talk about um, how the culture at large understands work and rest, how the church often misunderstands work and rest, what this commandment really teaches us, and then how Jesus is the key to us actually being able to do what God calls us to do. So let's get into this. But first, uh, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who gives us rest. Lord, even the very foundations of the Christian faith are about resting in you, even as we sang tonight. Even in our weariness, we know, Lord, that we can come to you and that you will hear us. The ear of sovereign grace will not be deaf because Jesus died in our place to secure our access to the Father. And so therefore, Lord, we are so thankful that we can come to you, come to you and hear from you. Lord, we thank you that you didn't give up on us, that you didn't quit speaking, and you speak even now through your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive what you would have for us tonight. Help us to see, help us to see the places where we, where we run away from the rest that you offer us in the gospel, all the places in our life where we are living out of kilter with the way you made us to be, people who know how to rest and know how to work. And help us to do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The culture at large is interesting. It's been said, and I think, I think rightly so, that we're a culture that works at play and plays at work. We work at play and play at work. Think about the energy that goes into the things that would be regarded really as um, play or as recreation. The, the kind of energy that you expend in knowing about the music that you like, for instance. Or, you know, how much time some of you lately have spent on the Internet researching disc golf discs and which one slide which way and this way, right? It's really, it's fascinating. Um, yeah, I had, to, I had to preach to myself in that one, sorry. Um, I know that that doesn't relate to very many people here. But there's so many, so many of these things that we just put an intense amount of energy and effort into that really, in a lot of ways, are about play. And yet, it, when we think about work, we often think of it as, as, you know, well, for me, I just always go back to this great Loverboy song. Everybody's working for the weekend. You guys too young to remember that? Well, maybe you are. It was a silly song. But it expressed a very true sentiment. Yeah, Justin knows it. You want to sing a little? Come a little for us. No. But it expressed a very true sentiment. That in a lot of ways, the culture regards play as what we were really made for. And work 
it's the way you either get enough money to get the toys you need to play, or you try to find a job that you'll really, really enjoy so that it'll be like play when you're at work. Um, and a lot of people, you know, five, ten years after college are still looking for that job that'll feel like play. And maybe they major or they took classes and things that seemed like really interesting, but actually to do that for a job wasn't, wasn't play at all. And so they're really confused. And so maybe they'll go back to graduate school. Um, we're really confused, I think, in our culture about work and about play and about the dignity that each of them has. God has given us work and play, work and rest. We need to have, actually, a more robust theology of entertainment that understands it as recreation, as part of Sabbath rest that extends even into the week into other times when we have the opportunity to rest and enjoy God's creation. Um, so we have a lot, of, you know, a lot of ways our culture is confused and we work at our play and we play at our work. It's certainly one of the messages that we get from our culture and it really produces people who hate work and only want to do enough work to be able to play. And you know people like this. Maybe you are people like this. Um, then on the other hand, you have a, a very different message that we get in the culture and that's pretty prevalent. And this is, this is the idea that work is the arena where you prove why you matter. Work is your opportunity to justify to the world why you matter. New York Times columnist David Brooks, who I particularly like, has written a book called Bobos in Paradise. Anybody know about this book? Bobos means bourgeois bohemians. And what he argues in this book is that for, for many, many years, many, many generations, there's been sort of this kind of split between more bourgeois people, middle class people that, you know, want to make money and be respectable, responsible people, and then sort of the bohemian counterculture kind of people. Okay? And he says that actually what we have come to now is people that have combined these two things together, where they really are living for upper middle class um, lifestyle in a lot of ways, but they still want to live like in East Nashville, and they still want to surround themselves with the accoutrements of oppressed peoples so that they feel more authentic and more in touch with things. And they, you know, it's a really funny book, but really interesting as well about the kinds of things we do to sort of deal with our guilt for having so much money and how we have distressed furniture because at least we feel like there's something really cool and real and authentic and earthy. Um, he talks about how bobos like lots of texture, you know, whether it's in their food, you know, we like whole grains and, you know, crunchy things versus, or it's in our artwork or whatever it is. And it's a really fascinating book. But one of the things he talks about in there is what he calls the rise of the meritocracy. And he points out how, you know, it wasn't that long ago, 40, 30 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, that the Ivy League schools quit making family connections the number one way you got into their schools and made SAT scores and, and grades the way you got into their schools. And it had a profound shift in our whole society where he says now we have a meritocracy where your worth is only what you can produce. And the difficulty is life has become a continual aptitude test. And you wonder why people put off marriage until they're 30. Well, who feels that they could go into that and be a success? 
And so we avoid things unless we're sure that we're going to be really good at it. It's why when you go to high school now, you have students that are really good at doing school, but they don't focus themselves on anything. Because, you know, you've got to be, you've got to cover your bases. You know, not to, like, following your gifts and really developing them. That will make you, you know, sort of putting all your eggs in one basket. We can't do that. In a meritocracy, there's just way too much pressure. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. And it's really interesting. And so it changes the way we work. And I've, it's interesting, you know, how I've, I find students sometimes over the years who come, very talented students. Um, interestingly, I remember one girl a few years ago, just a brilliant pianist. Um, who finally actually started to understand the gospel and realized that her righteousness, her reason for being, was not because she was a wonderful piano player. And it br brought this really kind of confusion to her life. She quit playing piano. For a year she was like, I, you know, the whole reason I've been playing piano and, you know, slaving away, and she was a classical pianist, so you know the kind of work that that, that entails and the, the long, long hours of practicing and the willpower, the discipline, and all of a sudden she realized the whole reason I was doing that was not at all right. And, and, and now eventually she got to the point where she could begin to enjoy it again. But it's just the meritocracy kind of messes up this stuff. It makes us feel like, you know, work is the reason I exist. The problem, of course, is that work is cursed. It's not. Now, the, interesting, the Bible doesn't say that work is bad or work is evil. It says it's cursed. It's frustrated. It means it never was actually a good thing for you to put your hope and trust in for why you matter, but it's even more difficult to do it now when everything you do is going to be frustrated, right? And yet these are kind of the two, the two sort of poles that the culture goes back and forth between. And I would submit to you that in the church we're often just as confused. You find both of these things often going on in the church and they're not, they're not talked about very much. And in some ways we actually... We, we actually I don't know, sort of pat workaholics for Jesus on the back sometimes. Because they seem spiritual, because they're so busy doing all this stuff. I, I, I remember, you know, for, for me, um, kind of the, this illustration from Chariots of Fire, I go back to time and time again. Do you guys know that movie? It's about two runners. One is a Christian, one is not. Um, Harold Abrams is the character who's not a Christian in that movie. And at one point, he's speaking about why he runs. And they're both, you know, Olympic runners, right? You know the story. Um, and he says this. It's fascinating. He says, uh, he's talking about a race that he's going to have the next day. And he's thinking about it and talking about it. And he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten seconds to justify my existence. The question is, why do you run? Why do you work? Is it because you feel like I have, you know, I have nine to five to justify my existence. Well, if you have nine to five to justify your existence, you'll probably stay till seven or eight just to make sure that your existence is good and justified. Right? And, it, you know, if that's, not, if that's not the way you look at life, maybe it's the way your parents have looked at life. Maybe your parents have bought into the lie that what it means to be a good provider is to, is to you know, work, 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 work. Work is so easily um, turned into an idol. But it's also something that we regard as evil. And neither one of those really fit what God would say about work, not to mention play. Now, the church often misunderstands that they have their own, they buy into both of those problems, I think, in a lot of ways. We have youth groups that are basically just cokes and jokes, you know, that are just, you know, let's get together and have kids 
you know, have fun, but we're not going to teach them anything because then it might, they might leave. Um, and then we have, you know, people, workaholics, it's all mixed up in the church as well. But there's some, there's some particular, I think, evangelical misunderstandings about work that I want to just mention for a minute or two. Um, and it basically boils down to this. Often people in the church, in the evangelical church, and other, church, other denominations as well, um, wrongly view life as having sort of sacred arena and a secular arena. That there are some kinds of jobs that are sacred, and there are some kinds that are secular. And if you're a really good Christian, you will be involved in full-time Christian work. There, there's, a lot, there's a lot of organizations I've been a part of where the message, whether it was explicitly stated or not, the message you got was, if you're really a good Christian, you'll go on staff with this ministry. Now, the, you know, there, certainly God calls people to work in full-time ministry of the word and preaching and teaching. But understand that every calling, every vocation is full-time ministry. In, in some ways, you know, I think it would be really great if we, um, instead of just ordaining missionaries and just ordaining pastors, we would have uh, times where we would um, lay our hands and pray for people that are going out into the business world or out into the arts community or out into teaching or nursing or whatever it is. Because we, we end up even if we don't believe this sacred-sacred dichotomy, we end up communicating it a lot of times in our churches. That if you're really spiritual, this is kind of the mindset in a lot of evangelical circles, if you're really spiritual, you'll be a full-time missionary. If you're not quite up to that challenge, well, then you'll be a pastor. Um, but, and if you can't really do that, you're really not you know, spiritual enough for that, well, then you'll work and make money to support people who do full-time ministry. And for sure, you'll be an evangelist at your place of work. Now, again... Ministry is a valid calling, an important calling. Supporting missions is biblical, right? Being a missionary, sharing your faith as you have opportunity at work is a good thing. It's fine. But, but all of these things seem to say, like, the only point of work is missions. And God doesn't say that. God actually created work before there was a need for missions. So it, it's ridiculous to think that the point of work is to do missions. It's certainly part of what we're called to do after the fall. But understand that God created us to work and to rest before sin even entered into the world. And, you know, not only do, do evangelicals get mixed up about work in this sacred secular dichotomy, they don't understand how to rest and how to play. And I think a lot of it flows out of the fact that we just have a hard time believing that we're saved really by grace alone. And we're always wanting to cover our bases. I'm saved by grace, but I better prove to God that, that I really, really, really mean it by doing all these things. Uh, I, I better, you know, I don't know if I can really rest. A lot of Christians, I think, feel guilty taking a day off. And then there are other Christians, of course, who feel guilty and probably should because they never take a day off. And God created us to live within these rhythms he's built into the created order of rest and work. So what is this commandment really teaching us? It's teaching us first and foremost that time, time is not under our control. You remember as we've been talking about this, the, the Ten Commandments are very undemocratic in so many ways. You know, God says you're not free to worship however you want. 
You're not free to worship whatever God you want. You're not even free to worship the right God however you want. That's commandments one and two. Then he says, your words matter. Commandment three, you're not free to say whatever you want to say. Whoa. <laughs> and now he says, your time is not your own. I have the right to tell you what to do with your time. Pretty soon he's going to say, I have the right to tell you what to do with your body as well. You find there are all these, you know, God in the Ten Commandments is saying, all, every one of these commandments presses the issue of who, who defines reality, who defines human flourishing, who defines what we're to be about. God says, I do. And you were made to live in accordance with my word that says there should be work and there should be rest. You see, the mod well, part of the modern world is we think that we can control time um, with scientific precision, but it ends up controlling us. Labor-saving devices, you know, just give us more time to, you know, to be workaholics. I, I don't know. My best ex example of that is working in a recording studio. Um, recording studios love, some, I know a lot of you guys are interested in that kind of thing. You need to know this. Recording studios make their money by buying all the latest gadgets, which are going to take you more and more time to use so that you spend more and more time because they bill by the hour. So the recording studios want to have lots of outboard gear, not just so you can make great records, but so you'll spend all this time fiddling with it. Pro Tools can help you speed up, but I tell you, I've never done a record with Pro Tools that didn't take longer than a regular record because now you can, you can micromanage every single decision. In the old days, you went in and you had one microphone and you tried to set it up in the right place and the band played and you said, okay, that's it, there's the record. Now you can, you can micromanage and evaluate ad nauseum every single little decision, okay? And so all this technology that seems like it should make things better ends up enslaving us. And now you've got all the, you know, the, the joke when I used to work in the recording studios was, you know, how, what is a natural, you know, uh, I, I know, um, how, how is this sort of thing, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how we used to say this word, but it was, it was like the, um, oh, I know what it was, how, how many, um, how does a natural producer, what does a natural producer say? Something about, it was some kind of screwing in the light bulb joke, and I'm messing it up, I can't remember it. But it was basically this idea, like, you would be in these sessions, and the, the producers would always, like, look at the studio musicians after the take. They'd be playing back the take, and, you know, the producer's supposed to be in charge, but he would inevitably look at the studio and say, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? And these, you know, completely insecure people that just didn't know how to say, I think that's good, I think it's good. And now it's just gotten worse. Because now you can, you can micromanage, well, is that beat just in the right place or we need to move it a little more? And if we move it a little more, what does that do to all the other parts that were in, anyway, it's just a mess. So modern, mind, modern, mind, modern man often thinks that we have these things under control, all this scientific precision, and it ends up controlling us. And there are so many other examples. Um, because embedded, you see, in the heart of what God is teaching us about the Sabbath is time is mine. You are to be a steward of time. You are not to try to control it in such a way that you can end up controlling your world. The Ten Commandments are always about teaching you that you were made to live independent upon God. And that all of our attempts to sort of create a world in which we don't really need God are, are really violations of what he's made us for. His call to set aside 
Sabbath rest is an invitation to be who he made us to be and to trust him in what is a very tangible thing, our time. Sometimes it's a, it's a very tangible thing. I, you know, I, I, do I have time to do this work that I feel like I need to do? I remember one of my professors in seminary very helpfully at the beginning of one of our classes said, for some of you, to get an A in this class would be a sin because of what you would have to give up and what you would have to neglect. For some of you, to not get an A in this class would be a sin. And so you need to figure out which of those people you are and then work accordingly. I thought that was really helpful, but pretty countercultural to say that sort of thing. That, that, you know, for a professor to say, it may be sin for you to get an A in this class because you wouldn't be spending enough time with your children. I thought was really, really interesting and really helpful. And that stuck with me. I don't, I don't remember very much of my, you know, how to, you know, cognate Hebrew weak verbs. Um, I'm ashamed to say, but I do remember that. Um, time. The Sabbath, here, here's what I, here's what I, the question I guess that we need to get at is, does our lack of rest, does our kind of nervousness about thinking about, gosh, if I really took this seriously, what God's saying here, what, what would that do to my life? I'm not sure, I'm not sure how that would, what that would mean. And how much of that reflects a real lack of trusting God? See, Eugene Peterson, guy who translated the message, has some wise things to say about the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath is about interference. It's about God interfering with all the things you think you need to get done. Saying, no, stop. Just stop. It's really hard for us. Particularly because, we, you know, again, we live in this culture that tells us you are worth what you produce. And goodness, you want to be as efficient as possible. And to take away one whole day of seven? That seems really unreasonable. And, and I think, in some ways, God likes it that way. Because he wants to get to the issue of, do you trust me? He's interfering with us, and he likes to do that. Peterson puts it this way, Sabbath is a deliberate act of interference, an interruption of our work each week, a decree of no work, so that we are able to notice, to attend, to listen, to assimilate this comprehensive and majestic work of God to orient our work in the work of God. Peterson is saying it's one of the problems with our work is we just run off and think that we know everything we need to know. And we don't ever stop and reflect on why are we doing what we're doing. I think one of the most important questions I ever ask students is, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you majoring in what you're majoring in? Why, why are you doing what you're doing with your time, with your money? What's the answer? Sabbath, you see, is a countercultural stand. I don't know why in the world I quoted Twisted Sister in a sermon. <laughs> but it's just what came to mind. We're not going to take it. There's a sense in which when we keep the Sabbath, it makes us weird. It marks us as distinctive people who have a, dis a distinctive view about time and about priorities and about who has the right to tell me what to do. Sabbath-keeping, William Willimon, former chaplain at Duke, says that Sabbath-keeping is a publicly enacted sign of our trust that God keeps the world. Therefore, we don't have to. How much of the stuff that keeps us so busy and stressed out is because we don't believe that God is really in charge of the world and that he needs our help? 
See, it's not enough to just say, you guys need to keep the Sabbath. I could, I could tell you that, and that's true. But I, but I want us to explore, what, what is it that makes it so difficult for us? What is it makes it, that makes this seem so preposterous and unreasonable? And, and a lot of what it is, is that we just don't really trust God with the way he's running the world. We feel like we've got we've to help, or we've got to control our little area of the world. Sabbath, the Sabbath is one of these places where the rubber meets the road. Do we trust God or not? Why do we resist God's command to cease? What are we afraid of? Where do we need to pray for God's need to, to rescue us? Um, turn, turn the page over here. Some more, some more practical things, thinking about, about rest and, and work. And you guys know, I, last year we, pre, we talked about this because we went through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is a really great, great passage in thinking about the Sabbath. One of my other favorite passages in thinking about rest is in Isaiah 30, 15. And, and, and the idea, you know, that sal- the salvation is described as resting. I remember talking with a student once who'd gotten mixed up in a cultic group called the National Church. And um, I, I remember, you know, this discipler, you know, for the church was meeting with one of our students. And so I said, well, let me come along to the meeting and we can talk about, about the Bible and about some of the things that you're learning now. And um, we, we got into this whole discussion about repentance. And this girl was saying how you need to repent of all your sins, and then you can, you know, have the Holy Spirit come into your life, but only after you repent of all your sins and quit sinning. And we were talking about that. I said, really? Well, I said, you know, when Peter talks about repentance in Acts chapter 2, and I see here he does talk about that, do you think that the Old Testament has any bearing on how he understands repentance? In other words, if the Old Testament talks about repentance, do you think that that's relevant to what Peter's saying in Acts chapter 2, where he says, repent and be baptized? And she said, well, sure, of course. So we'll look at, Acts, or look at Isaiah 30, 15. In repentance and rest is your, is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Repentance here is equated with rest. And what it means fundamentally to be a Christian is somebody who is resting in the life and death of Jesus. Resting. The beginning of the Christian life is resting before it's working. And, and it, you know, at this point, you know, the, the, the lady said, well, being a Christian is absolutely not about resting. And I said, well, then do you have a problem with Jesus? Because he says, come unto me, all you are heavy and weary laden, and I will put you to work. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he said, I will give you rest. And he does put us to work. But it completely changes the way you work if you begin with rest. If you're working so that God will let you rest, it's a very different kind of work than if you're working out of the rest that's been secured for you in Jesus. It's a completely different thing. And for so many people, I think the reason that there's no rest in their lives is because they're just not sure that they can trust in the rest that Jesus has provided. And I want you to think about that. I want you to make those connections. I want to make those connections for myself. Are there, is the, the lack of rest in my life, the, the reason I fill myself up with so many distractions? Woody Allen one time was asked, what is it you believe in? And he said, I believe in the power of distraction. I know a lot of people who believe in the power of distraction so that they don't have to think about what's really going on in their heart and in their lives. And God says, I didn't make you for that. I didn't make you to be continually distracted so that you would never reflect 
on who I am and what I've made you to be about. Rest. Stop. Consider. Ponder. Sabbath is about resting. It's about embracing, though, as well. It's a book I really love. If you, if you want to study further about Sabbath and what it means to keep the Sabbath, I love this book by Marva Dawn. She's a Lutheran theologian, and it's called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Um, and she says that, that Sabbath keeping involves resting, embracing, ceasing, and feasting are her kind of four words. I'm going to talk about those just a little bit tonight. The first, you know, I talked about resting. It's also about embracing. Um, it means, you know, to keep the Sabbath means embracing a very countercultural way of living. And I said something about that already, and we're running out of time, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead here. But it, it means um, considering that, you know, taking time to think about life and how it should be lived. Getting out of the idea that the, that the most spiritual Christian life is just something that sort of happens to us. Um, do you guys remember that Forrest Gump? Of course you remember Forrest Gump, right? And, and sort of, you know, the, the, the point of the movie where they talk about, you know, you got that, that little feather that's kind of floating in the wind, and you know, at the end when Jenny's, you know, dying of cancer, and they're having this big kind of deep talk, and they're talking about sort of these contrary views of life. Some people believe that you make your own reality. Some people believe that you're like that feather blown about by the wind. But Christians don't believe either one of those. Do you realize that? We don't believe that you're just blown about by the wind, by impersonal forces, but we also don't believe that you make your own reality. We live in, in communion with the God who is Lord over all things, but we live as responsible beings whose choices and actions really matter. And so we, 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 we don't just sort of resting is actually the time when we think and we consider and we ponder, why am I doing what I'm doing? How does God connect to all this stuff? And it's vital to living with intentionality. I think a lot of times we get in this sort of continuous stressed out condition. And, you know, it's not, by, it's not by accident. I mean, the advertisers know that if you are put into a state of alarm, that you're more likely to remember things. And so, they, you know, they do these quick cuts. And they do, you know, lots of flashing colors and blaring noises and different things that will make your body feel like it's a, in a state of alarm. So you remember things. And it's no wonder that we find it difficult to rest and difficult to actually stop for a minute and take a breath and think about, why am I doing what I'm doing? So much of the time, we're dr being driven by these things and we never stop to actually think about it. Part of what Christian community should be is a, is a place where we say, brother, sister, stop. Think about why are you doing what you're doing. Let's slow down. Let, let, let's pray. Let's look at what God has to say about this. Let's take counsel together. The Sabbath, though, as well, think about this. The Sabbath is not just a negative thing. I think a lot of times, and maybe a lot of you that have grown up in churches that have been very concerned about the Sabbath have come maybe grown to know it as a real negative thing. But what God says, actually, in, in his word is that we should learn to call his Sabbath a delight. Not that we should just sort of grumble about it and say, oh, I really need to, I've got a lot of things to do and I can't stop, but okay, at least I can take a nap or something. No, he says learn to take, call the Sabbath a delight. The Sabbath is a delight. The Sabbath, actually, think of the Sabbath this way. It's a party that whets our appetite for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That every seven days, we have an opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and to whet our appetite for the day when he will come back again and set everything right. 
And so what you have built into the Christian life is this sort of stirring up your longings and then frustrating you. Welcome to the Christian life. Welcome to Romans 7. Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. But, but listen, that's what it's about. Stirring up your longings, but then you get out there and you realize that my work is still cursed. And yet there's a day coming. There's a day coming. Do you think you'll work in heaven? I do. I do. I think you'll spend all eternity, all eternity studying, worshiping, investigating all that God has made. God created Adam and Eve to work to bring about all of the God-glorifying potential that he built into this world. And we haven't begun to scratch the surface. It's going to be great. The Sabbath is a, is a party that whets our appetite for that. It's a day to feast on God. As one of my professors used to say, it's one day to be able to focus on your love relationship with God. Why would you neglect that? Why would you not take advantage of that? You need that. Your soul needs that. My soul needs that. It's a day to focus on beauty and the good gifts our God has, has given us. Do you know that the Jews um, had this practice? When they would get a special food, they would save it to the Sabbath. After reading Marva Dawn's book, I tried this. I need, I need to go back to this. I would say this. I said this last year, and I still haven't done it. But I, I tried this a little bit, and it was really cool. Instead of having, like, one little square for my chocolate bars, I love, I love you know, gourmet chocolate. I love imported German chocolate, okay? I love to go to JJ's and just look through all the different um, cool chocolates that they have down there. And, and you know, but I don't, I don't just, like, gorge myself on it. I'll eat, like, one little square a day. And I keep it in this little, little place in our kitchen cabinet. And if you've been to my house, maybe you've seen that um, place. But after reading Marvadon, I said, I'm going to not eat it all week long, and then I'm going to eat the whole bar in one day and just enjoy it to the glory of God. <laughs> I have some friends. Actually, uh, one of them was a Belmont student that started a, a, an amazing chocolate shop down in Franklin with a biblical theology of enjoying chocolate, part of God's good creation. I think that's wonderful. Um, I'm all about that. So it's a day to enjoy. A day to enjoy. To enjoy each other. To enjoy all the gifts that God has made. And let me just tell you this. The implications for our community are huge. No community will flourish if the people are not having an opportunity to rest. To be rejuvenated. If you're not being rejuvenated eventually you will try to suck life more and more out of the people that you're with all the time. The way you obey Sabbath is, is really key and vital for the way you live in community, not to mention it being a matter of justice and the way you treat other people, which certainly is part of this, but even thinking about what do you have to give to others if all you ever do is work, work, work. Sabbath is for the good of human community. It's not just for you personally. It's for our community. The Sabbath should be a day when we stop and consider how our actions are affecting those around us. It should be a call to see ourselves as involved in the lives of other people. Look at this. Even your animals. One of the Puritans used to say, I, I wouldn't give two bits for a Christianity that didn't, um, that, for a man's Christianity if it didn't make his his animals better. In other words, if his animals aren't treated better, then I, I, could care, I don't think very much of his Christianity. 
does your Christianity make people that you work with, does it make your roommate better? Does it make your teacher's job more enjoyable? Does it make your parents' job more enjoyable? Christianity should connect to everything. And Sabbath has a lot to do with whether you have just energy to give or whether you've actually had time to think about how can I love. It says in, in the book of Hebrews that we are to consider how to love one another. When do you have time to consider how this particular person needs to be loved and this particular person needs to be loved? If we fill our lives with so many things, so many distractions, how does Jesus help us with this? Okay, it's one thing to say, you should do all these things. And maybe I've expanded your vision of what Sabbath could be. I hope so, because I think the Bible just cares so much more. And what Jesus was always fighting with people that had restricted the Sabbath keeping to just what you can do and what you, should, you could do and couldn't do. He's always wanting them to think more in terms of how is this nurturing relationship with God? How is this nurturing love for neighbor? Sabbath should be about that. But how does Jesus set us free to live this out? First point, if he's the one, he is the one the Sabbath points to. Hebrews 4, he is our Sabbath rest. The rest that we have in Sabbath should be, again, wetting our appetite for what we were made for. We were made to rest. We were not made to work all the time. And we can never have real rest in our lives until we've rested in him. One of my favorite um, quotes of all time, David Dixon, Scottish Puritan, who on his deathbed was asked, how is it with your soul? And he said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I've fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace. Do you know what it means to rest even from your good deeds? I don't mean to quit doing good deeds. I mean to rest from trusting in them. Jesus is the one who gave up his rest. Not only is the one, he, is, he is rest, but he's the one who gave up his rest in the Father's joy so that we could gain the rest that we were made for. See, Jesus is the only one who ever deserved to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that's been prepared for you. And yet here's the unbelievable thing. If you are in Christ, you will hear that one day. Because Jesus earned that for you. Do you realize that? Don't you want to be in on that? Run to Jesus. Rest in him, and you will hear one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you should hear, even now, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because the Bible says that God rejoices over you with singing. It doesn't say that God looks at you and says, oh, this is a person, they don't know how to rest. They're making a mess of all of my commandments. And they say, no, this person is in Jesus. He secured their eternal rest in my Bosom. Look at this child of mine. That's what Jesus does for us. Why would you try to rest anywhere else? And why would you feel like you need to control your world? I mean, if Jesus gave up his rest in the Father's joy, the rest that he earned, the rest that he deserved, the rest that he had a right to keep, if he gave that up for you, why is it so difficult for us to trust him with the running of his world? See, there should be a direct connection between resting in what he did on the cross and being able to trust him with the way he runs his world and being able to rest from feeling like you need to be 
in charge of the world. Tim Keller one time, pastor that I, I really appreciate, said it's one thing to, to, be, to find yourself in a job that you're overqualified for. You guys, some of you guys probably at this stage in your life find yourselves in jobs that you're way overqualified for, and they're so boring. It's so boring. But he says it's death to find yourself in a job that you are way underqualified for, that you can't possibly do. And every day you've got to go to work and try to, try to pretend and try to keep up the illusion that you really can handle this. I remember I told you the story sometimes. One time when I got fired from a recording session, I was asked by a friend of mine to play on this children's record, and I thought, how hard could that be? And he said, well, you're, you know, I know you're a guitar player. Do you actually know how to read music? And I said, yeah, I can read music. If you're a guitar player, you know why that's funny. Um, and I got there, and I couldn't read the music. And after about two hours of trying to keep up, you know, I, they called me into the control room, and they said, Kevin, it's just not working. We've already called somebody else. Pack up your things. You've got to go. You, you would much rather sit through a bunch of boring sessions you know, playing one, four, and five chords, <laughs> then have that. <laughs> it's death to, to be put in a situation where you have no possibility of, of doing the job. Listen, when you take on the role of running your world, it's no wonder it feels like death. It's no wonder it keeps you awake at night. It's no wonder it makes you so insecure. Give it up. You weren't made for it. You aren't qualified for it. You do a terrible job of it. <laughs> so do I. So, but not, it's not just that you do a terrible job. Jesus does a wonderful job. And, and if Jesus gave up his rest for you, then you should be able to trust him with your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but you gave it up. We thank you that you humbled yourself even to death on a cross so that we could be guaranteed a rest. Lord, we know, we know that, you're, that the rest you've secured for us is real and solid, but we find it so difficult to believe it and so difficult to have it connect to all the things that we're worried about. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the peace that passes understanding. You would help us to consider to consider your death and your life and what that means for all the things that we think we have to control. Lord, help us to trust you. Increase our faith, as your disciples asked. Lord, we like them. We need it as well. Help us to rest for your glory. Help us to work for your glory. Help us to play and enjoy your creation all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.